Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Wachikokatheru is a name you remember. The Pomfret, Connecticut native made Yukon history last fall when it was announced that she's the university's first Rhodes Scholar. The senior environmental studies will graduate this spring. And then she joins 31 other people in the American Rhodes Scholar class of 2020 who will go on to graduate studies at the University of Oxford in England. We invited her to our studio to talk about this prestigious scholarship and her upbringing in rural Connecticut. Wajiko Gutheru is known as Wawa to her friends and family. Uh, Wajiko, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me about your, your name's origin, where your family's from. Um, so both my parents are from Kenya, so I'm a proud Kenyan-American. And my name comes from my ethnic group. So both of my parents are Kikuyu. And the way that the story goes is that the first Kikuyu man had nine daughters, and one of his daughters was named Wuchiko. I understand you grew up in Pomfret, Connecticut. That's the quiet corner, the northeast part of our state. Uh, how did your parents arrive in Connecticut from Kenya? Yeah, I, I always asked them that growing up. And uh, my parents actually um, k- both came to uh, Western Massachusetts. Um, they actually met in Connecticut at a family friend's house. I recently learned this, but they were both living in Worcester, Massachusetts, because a lot of Kenyan immigrants tend to locate there because there's a big community. And once they got together and they had my older sister, um, they decided to eventually move to Connecticut when um, my mom got pregnant with me because they didn't want to engage in the lottery system that would happen in Worcester. And they knew that if they came to Connecticut and went to the quiet corner, there was no lottery system in regards to having a good quality education from K to 12. So they moved to a town that they had never before um, gone to, didn't know anyone. And they actually moved to Putnam first and then Pomfret. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned uh, Worcester has a a lot of Kenyan Americans, but then uh, Uh, Pomfret, Connecticut. What was that like for them? Yeah, I think it was definitely a zero to 100 situation (laughs) in terms of, or actually the inverse of Mm -hmm. that, of being in a Kenyan community and not just being around other Kenyans, but also other immigrants to coming to Panam and Pomfret where there weren't that many um, immigrants, let alone any black people. So that was definitely Mm -hmm. um, a shift for them and us. Mm -hmm. Personally, my parents are from India, and they moved to uh, northwest Pennsylvania, which is also predominantly white. So growing up, I was one of just a handful of of uh, students of color in my town. And when you have a name that's unusual or if you look differently, you know, people do call attention to it, but eventually you become part of that community and it's no longer, uh, you know, where your family is from, but the fact that, you know, you are a member of the community. I'm just curious, as you were growing up in Pomfret, if you felt that way too. Absolutely. I think there was definitely a transition that happened when we first moved to Pomfret. When I first went um, to Pomfret and specifically entered in the public school system, I was the first black student ever to be in that institution. And I remember there were a lot of instances of racism and, and students saying things because they never interacted with a black person before. And um, that 
definitely um, dwindled as I got older and as I was able to become more comfortable bringing my full self into mm-hmm. those spaces to where I wasn't as embarrassed when my mom would like come in on the phone speaking Kikuyu because when I was younger I used to be so embarrassed and mm-hmm. by the time I was in eighth grade and onwards I was like yeah my family is Kenyan and like we don't speak English all the time at home and um, I learned to be really comfortable with myself in mm-hmm. that context. Um, how did your uh, parents counsel you uh, during your upbringing when people may have questioned um, you know, where you're from or question your ability? Um, so how, what did they tell you? I think it was a learning experience for all of us involved, right? Because my parents um, had come from Kenya and came to the state. So that was a very big cultural shift for them in general. Um, So they had experienced something similar, but then they also had never experienced in the context of myself and my siblings growing up in a context where we always were different and I never experienced um, just like being like everyone else around us. So it was definitely something that I think brought us all closer together. They would give me advice and like give examples of things that they went through when they came to the states but also left space for both of us to learn from the situation because they couldn't necessarily relate in the same exact way. Uh, you know, immigrants all have different stories, but often a common thread is the value of education, something my parents uh, instilled in me and my sister at a very young age. Your family, your parents came here for their education. And so was that really a, a strong uh, theme throughout your life as your, as your parents were raising you, that education was very important? Absolutely. I think um, if there's been one common theme in my household, it's the fact that Anyone can take anything away from you, but they can't take your education. And um, my parents have absolutely lived that through their lives. And as you said, coming to the States primarily for getting an education and having the dream of having um, their their kids and their offspring to have that opportunity. And, you know, I, I've also been able to see them actualize that in my life. My mom uh, went back to school to become a registered nurse to get her BSN when I was in fourth and fifth grade. So I was able to see her make that transition from an LPN to her saying, OK, I have four kids and I work full time, but I still want to go back to school and I still want to complete this dream that I've had, and I'm going to do it regardless. So having that example, not just in the stories that I hear of my parents pursuing their education before I was born, but also seeing that um, and seeing those struggles and even living um, some of that um, has absolutely like grounded me in my pursuit. Uh, Wajiko, we're talking with you because you're one of 32 people nationwide that were elected to the American Rhodes Scholar Class of 2020. So you obviously, you applied for this uh, program. But uh, before you talk about why, when you got the call, what was your reaction? The call for my acceptance? So it's interesting because it wasn't necessarily a call. So um, the way that that process works is I found out that I was a finalist after submitting my application around in October. So Mm -hmm. I found out I was a finalist the first week of November, and then I had my two-day interview in New York City. So that's where they brought all the finalists, and um, the night before we had some sort of cocktail party, which really wasn't a cocktail party. It was just water and walking (laughs) around and getting to know the other finalists and the panelists for about an hour and a half, and then the next day was the interview. At the end of the interview day, um, they called us all into a room, all the finalists, all the um, judges, and they announced the two winners in front of everyone. So that was the first name to be called. What what happened when they when you heard your name? Oh, I just started crying. I could not stop crying. I cried nonstop for I'd say like three and a half hours. I went to sleep, and then I started crying again. Why did you cry? 
I just couldn't believe it. It was just all these different emotions rushing in. I feel as though after I found out, we all had to remain in the room for like another five minutes because they were telling us procedure. And I'd have no idea what they said in that time because in my mind, I was like, oh my goodness, how am I going to tell my parents? How am I going to tell my family? Like, what does this mean? I cannot even begin to grapple with the reality of not just get it being fully funded for grad school, but like what this means in terms of my leadership being validated and being able to now continue to be on this trajectory and have the support of um, so many people in that community. Um, And when I called my parents, that was another story. That was more tears. And then my friends and family, I mean, it's just incredible. Mm. Uh, You applied for this program. For our listeners who don't know a lot about the Rhodes Scholarship, tell us about this program and what drew you to it. Absolutely. So the Rhodes Scholarship is a fully funded graduate um, program scholarship that allows those who apply. Now it's actually accessible to anyone in the world because they just started the Global um, Road Scholarship um, program. But essentially it began, I don't know the exact year, um, it began as a way to um, provide um, some of the youngest and brightest scholars in the world the opportunity to study at the University of Oxford. So I actually was planning on taking quite a few years, um, gap years, as we call them, um, to work and just be in um, environmental um, justice work. Um, But I actually had a conversation with one of my mentors, and they were like, you know, well, you should think about applying for the Rhodes Scholarship. Like, you've never experienced international um, study in this way, and maybe it would provide you some additional context to give you those tools that you need to really begin to solve these problems that you want to solve. Mm. Uh, You mentioned environmental science. Uh, Why are you studying that at UConn? Well, I mean, that's that's quite a long story. But um, I um, I first um, decided that I wanted to study environmental studies um, in high school. Actually, it was in my junior year. I took an environmental science course and I grew up in the quiet corner. So the quiet corner is also known for its scenic routes where uh, it's a part of the last large forested area of Connecticut. So I grew up surrounded by wilderness and I spent a lot of time outside, but I never really saw myself as being an environmentalist, um, let alone um, foresaw myself as being someone in the field. And a lot of that was because I never really connected to it. I just never really saw myself like physically represented in the folks that I associated with it. And a lot of the interests that I did associate myself with, um, especially social justice related issues, um, weren't often connected to that to that. So when I took that environmental science class, we had an environmental justice chapter to where that was the first time I was able to connect those environmental issues to the other issues of social justice. And I said, why isn't this conversation being had? And that led me to pursuing that in college. Uh, you alluded to when you think about the environmental movement, it is predominantly white. And so uh, feeling that you know you have a place in this movement because uh, you care and connecting it with social justice issues. So what has your experience been um, in our state um, as a senior at UConn working towards uh, this goal? And where do you see are some challenges? 
Well, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of the environmental field is overwhelmingly white. Um, and I find that, um, as I said, I, I feel like I've had a really interesting um, life in which I've been uniquely positioned to find comfort and discomfort. And one of the things that drives me to remain in this field and to be a leader in the environmental field and um, really push the environmental movement forward to really begin to solve some of our most pressing issues is the fact that I want to see more people of color in this field. And um, it, I, I've, I've experienced being the only person of color, the only black person in most of my environmental classes, if not all of them, and doing the work that I do in the state and even outside of the state. This summer I was in Seattle and so <laughs> one of the only people of color in that space. And, you know, that when I think of that, that context of the environmental field and then the additional layer of the fact that people of color are at the forefront of environmental justice, that tells me that I have a place because every time I walk into, into a space and I'm the only person of color, that tells me that I can help really challenge this movement to really be more inclusive. Mm. How would you describe uh, the movement at UConn uh, with you as part of it? Uh, do you feel like it's being uh, more inclusive? I think we're definitely moving towards it. Um, the environmental movement on campus freshman year versus what it is now is very different. And I think that's also um, that speaks to the general conversation, I think, in regards to um, youth activism in the environmental sphere. It's definitely um, become a more general um, conversation in the past even year, um, especially with you know the youth strikes that have been happening. Um, but I think um, environmental justice in that term wasn't um, a commonplace at UConn my freshman year, my sophomore year. And that was something that I really um, worked towards through doing panels and, and teach-ins and, and just bringing that into all my classes and the curriculum. And um, now it's definitely talked about more. I think there's a lot more to be done, but um, I'm really excited, especially about the emerging leaders and mm -hmm. leaders there right now that are prioritizing that. I mentioned you're one of 32 Rhodes Scholars in 2020. It's a really big deal here in Connecticut because you're the first Rhodes Scholar out of UConn. So yeah. do you, are you feeling the pressure? Am I feeling the pressure? Um, maybe not pressure. Um, I feel like I put pressure on myself inherently. Mm -hmm. um, but if anything, I just feel really grateful and blessed to be able to represent UConn and represent the school that... Um, not only provided me with the resources that have allowed me to get to this point, but um, it was the first time and place where I felt as though I had potential as a leader. Mm -hmm. And there were so many people around me validating that and providing me um, the time and um, resources and trust to really grow into that. And I have so much to learn and so much to grow, and I'm really excited to go to Oxford and continue to grow and learn. But um you know, I, I get to represent the school that helped me get there and get, get beyond the trajectory. So it's a real honor. This is where we live. I'm talking with Wajiko Gutheru, a UConn senior graduating this spring. She's the first Rhodes Scholar in UConn's history. Uh, oftentimes we hear the term environmental justice. And so can you t maybe unpack that a little bit for us when uh, what that means exactly? And with your studies at Oxford, uh, these postgraduate studies, what do you hope to accomplish? Absolutely. So when I think of environmental justice, um, I, I think of what environmental justice is trying to achieve and what it's trying to correct. So when we think of environmental racism and race being um, the number one indicator of one's proximity to, say, a toxic 
toxic waste plant or forms of environmental inequity. Um, environmental justice is a corrective measure. It's saying that all people, all beings deserve um, equitable access to um, a positive um, environmental experience. And that's very broad and that means a lot of things. That means access to fresh, um, healthy food. That means access to um, clean water, clean air. That means access to green space. And um, something that I'm really interested in is assessing the barriers and specifically the understudied barriers that prevent people of color from participating in, in, the, in the environmental field or even wanting to participate in the environmental field. I am, a lot of the literature that has been done discusses, say, like access to green space, um, say national parks. And when you look at like the research on national park visitation, for instance, you find that less than 9% of the visitation each year is from people of color. And why is that? You know, is it that people of color don't care about the environment? Is it because um, people of color see the environment as being more than a national park? I I'm interested in really assessing um, some of those barriers um, because some of those barriers have come up for me. And what I've seen in assessing a lot of that literature is a lot of what is being assessed has been more of physical barriers, such mm -hmm. as, like, say, transportation or monetary means and not necessarily, say, um, psychological barriers or um, historic context of why certain communities may not feel um, as comfortable in, in, say, a national park mm -hmm. away from, quote unquote, civilization. Um, so that's something that I'm really interested in assessing mm -hmm. at Oxford and beyond. I was thinking about environmental justice issues in this country. Um, the last few years, attention on uh, really a tragedy in Flint, Michigan, yeah. where you have uh, people of color uh, being exposed to um, very dangerous um, amounts of lead, not being having access to clean drinking water. And the question is always, if they were not in Flint, Michigan, and if they were not people of color, would this issue have been resolved a lot sooner? Uh, and that's something that's in, on top of mind for people. Absolutely. And I think when you think of um, environmental injustice, environmental injustice goes so hand in hand with every other social issue. Um, and, you know, I, I often cringe um, at, you know, people are like, OK, so Wawa, why didn't you just do social justice? Why are you bringing that into the environmental space or totally different things? I'm like life. Nothing is a single issue. Our lives are so multifaceted. And to simply say environmental issues and say acts, say in the context of Flint and Newark and so many other cities, not just in the United States, but around the world where people aren't getting access to clean water, which is a basic human right. Um, that's also due to the path of least resistance. If when you look at, at say Flint, Michigan or Newark and you think of people that have a seat at the decision-making table, you're not going to find the people experiencing these things at the decision-making table. They don't have power. So when you think of um, the path of least resistance, um, the same communities where you're going to find environmental injustice, where you're going to find um, you know, high rates of asthma, you're going to find high rates of um, heart disease, you're going to find high rates of police brutality, you're going to find high rates of um, school to prison pipeline instances of students, you know, having, um, being exposed to mass incarceration. So you have all these social issues that go hand in hand. So to simply say to address these issues to provide access to fresh water, mm -hmm. it's, that's not, just not it. You have to address all of that together. Uh, that goes on into my next question uh, when you mentioned the importance of having a seat at the table because uh, one of your aspirations, I understand, is to be uh, a congresswoman uh, for the state of Connecticut. So you want to get into politics. Eventually, eventually. Um, 
<laughs> one day. It's <laughs> definitely not in the short term. Um, but in the long term, I think being able to um, be a congresswoman and really represent the interests of Connecticut residents would be really great. I hear a lot of my peers from Connecticut saying, I want to move to this place and this place, and there's nothing in Connecticut. And that really breaks my heart because then who is good, who's left then to fight for our state and the people of the state? And I, I am really interested to come back and be able to do that. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest is Wajiko Gutheru, the first Rhodes Scholar in Yukon's history. After the break, we'll hear more about the conversation she had with her African parents about applying for a scholarship associated with Cecil Rhodes, a British imperialist and businessman who exploited Southern Africa during the late 19th century. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Wajiko Gutheru, a Yukon senior who's the university's first Rhodes Scholar. Under this prestigious scholarship, she'll be heading to England for her graduate studies at the University of Oxford. She's the daughter of Kenyan parents who immigrated to the U.S. and settled in the quiet corner of Connecticut in the town of Pomfret. I talked a little bit um, to you about uh, your parents and how they've influenced you, but I imagine you have many mentors along the way. Who are some of the people uh, that helped you uh, get to this point? Thank you so much for asking that. You know, I I think of... The Rhodes Scholarship, for instance, and that was eight letters of recommendation. So when you think of that application and being my two-page CV, my personal statement, and eight letters of recommendation, when they opened up my application, a lot of the information that they got about me was from other people talking about me. And when I talk about UConn being a place where I was able to um, have people invest so much time and energy in me, like I'm not exaggerating. I have so many people that I I can talk about. Um, I remember my freshman year, I approached um, one of the um, professors in the Department of Nutritional Sciences. She's actually at the University of Florida. Her name's Dr. Mobley. And I was like, I'm so interested in doing community-based nutrition education work. I was not a nutritional sciences major. I had no experience in that. But I was so interested in understanding um, a lot of the issues or a lot of the reasons why there are disparities in how people um, access fresh, healthy food. And she took me on and I was with her for two years. And that led me to thinking about campus food insecurity and led to my work as um, the founder of a uh, co-founder of the Yukon Access to Food Effort. And I think of um, Dr. Wimet, who I was just emailing when I was walking in here, one of um, the mentors that I'm closest with. And she, um, we did an independent study this past semester on ecological grief and the experience of young people in terms of feeling grief for the loss of so many um, ecosystems and so many um, different different habitats. When we think of, you know, Indonesia and Australia and what's going on. Um, And Dr. Phoebe Godfrey and the work that she's been able to do for me and me being one of her TAs and just like the personal mentorship that all these people have provided me and allowing me to sit in their offices, text them at like midnight (laughs) when I'm like freaking out about these interviews or just like trying to figure out how to deal with these issues. I've been so blessed and so lucky 
to have really this village of people mm-hmm. that have helped me and I hope to continue to have them in my corner and make them proud. Yeah, you don't need to freak out about an interview. You're <laughs> natural. <laughs> Watch it go. Uh, you know, I thought it was interesting, uh, you know, hearing about, um, you know, some of the people that you've connected with because you, know, you had uh, an interest in learning about their field or their specialty. Where do you think you get your spark, your curiosity? Um, because we hear so often, what you know, as we grow, you know, it's it's you find people that support you and encourage you, but along the way, it's natural to find people who want to tear you down or discourage you, and that's why it's so important uh, to have educators who see the potential in every child in front of them. And I'm just curious, you know, how, um, you know, what it is about your upbringing and what you've experienced in Pomfret that has given you that natural curiosity to want to keep keep learning. I think you're absolutely right in terms of. Um, I no one's ever asked me that before, so I'm like thinking, and I think it's really been based off of my village, you know, my my parents and my family and the educators that I've had growing up that um, never belittled me or never asked me, you know, why do you ask so many questions? Why do you keep wanting to investigate things that have nothing to do with you Um, or (laughs) may not seem like they have anything to do with me and then come to find out that they do? And I think it's it's been through that. I I think I've been really lucky in the people that um, I've been able to be around and that everyone has been, um, I wouldn't say everyone, but I'd say most, I've been really um, yeah, lucky that people are interested in hearing, I guess, my thoughts and opinions and helped um, develop those things from ideas to actual projects. So um, kudos to all those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mentioned the Rhodes Scholarship, again, uh, one of the most prestigious academic awards in the world, named after this businessman, Cecil Rhodes, 19th yes. century businessman, uh, a big player in British imperialism in Africa, yeah. the continent where your family is from. So when you were thinking about applying for the Rhodes Scholarship, did you think about his legacy and what it meant for, for you to take on this opportunity? Yes, absolutely. In fact, actually, before I applied, before I started my application, um, I sat down with my parents and I was like, okay, so (laughs) Cecil Rose, imperialist, colonialist, he um, has accumulated, he had accumulated all this blood money off the backs of black Africans. Should I apply? (laughs) Um, Because, like, you cannot hide away from that legacy. To not grapple with and think about that legacy, entering even submitting application, I think, um, that's just not right. Um, And we talked about it, and it's something that um, I was thinking about when I clicked submit, when I had my interview, and it's something I still think about. And the way that I've begun to grapple with that and how I will continue to grapple with that for the rest of my life is thinking, okay, this is, it's really been looking at the Rhodes Scholarship and thinking, you know, this is not free money. This is blood money. This is money that was accumulated off of terror and slavery and um, injustice. So what am I going to do as a public servant? What am I going to do with my life trajectory to really um, not just reform that legacy, but use that legacy to reinvest back into the very people that um, were were exploited to get to that. And I think, um, I, I actually wish more people asked me about that because I don't think that you should be a Rhodes Scholar without talking about that and without 
confronting that head on. And something that I really appreciated about the Roads Trust is that, um, especially in the past like decade, um, Rhodes Scholars have been pushing um, the Roads Trust and Oxford as an institution to really um, reassess even the name, having Rhodes still have the name on there. They have a movement called um, Roads Must Fall, um, in which um, a lot of scholars have been calling for um, pulling down a lot of the statues for again renaming the scholarship and i and i really respect the fact that there has been um space provided for that conversation and for that critique regardless of what people's opinions are of that i think providing that open space for that dialogue is so important and that's the type of environment that i want to go in i want to be around people that are able to like have that conversation and be um comfortable with discomfort because it's not a comfortable legacy and I don't think anyone should just sit in that legacy and not deal with it. Uh, when we talk about um, you know moving forward um, with uh, again your studies at Oxford, I mentioned uh, again you're interested um, in environmental justice and maybe one day a career in politics. But what does the next couple of years look like for you? So kind of set it up for us in terms of once you graduate from UConn, you jet off to to England, and how long will you be there? <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm actually in currently submitting my applications for my graduate programs. So I have to be formally accepted and get a a spot within the two programs that I am applying for. So hopefully, fingers crossed, I will be admitted into, for the first year, an MSc in Nature Society and Environmental Governance. And in the second year, um, I hopefully will be admitted into the MSc in Evidence-Based Social Intervention and Policy Evaluation. Um, And so I hopefully will be at Oxford for two years. Um, they do provide the option to extend that if I decide to do a defill. I'm not exactly sure, but who knows once I get there. But um, I will be at Oxford for two years. So the way that the timeline um, works out is I will be graduating in May. Oh, my goodness. I can't <laughs> even believe it. Um, and I'll be graduating in mid-May. And um, I'm a part of the Truman Scholarship um, group. So I will be taking part in the Truman Summer Institute, which starts like May 28th. So I'll actually be going to D.C. for eight weeks. And then I'll be back in um, like late July and then I'll have um, around like a month and a half, two months to be at home. Who knows what I'll be doing? Um, And um, then I go to Oxford in September 25th. Can I ask what you do for fun? What I do for fun, (laughs) I love to sing. My sister's in the green room. She can hear me. She's probably like, yep, and she will never stop. I'm a part of an acapella group called Husky Angama. It's like a Hindi fusion acapella Mm -hmm. group. It's so much fun. Um, And that's something I actually joined this past year. I I don't live by regrets, but the only regret I have in college was not joining acapella earlier because I have an excuse for singing all the time. I read a lot. Um, I watch a lot of movies, not just like... I guess, intellectual documentaries, but a lot of, um, I guess, like just fun TV shows. I like Avatar, The Last Airbender. I spent a lot of times with um, my friends and family. Um, Yeah, so. Can I put you on the spot and ask you to sing for us? To sing for you? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I know my sister's laughing at me right now. I know she is. Okay, let me think of a song. Well, sometimes I go out by myself and I look across the waters 
and nothing. Oh, I'm done. I'm done. That's so beautiful. You have a beautiful <laughs> voice. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's funny. Thank well, you. Thank you so much, though. <laughs> well, I really um, enjoyed speaking with you, and I can't wait to see where you go, Wajiko. I, I believe, did you have a, a day where the governor proclaimed oh it was goodness. your day? Tell us about that. That was such an incredible day. Oh, my goodness, because... I was just told that we were going to go meet the governor, which is a big deal, um, and that we were, and he was interested in meeting me and my family. So I told my parents and my siblings, I was like, hey, um, we were invited. We should go. We were all excited. We got dressed up, and we went. And as soon as we got there, UConn's president was there, and a whole bunch of photographers and videographers were there. And we're like, what is going on? And they're like, so we've been keeping a surprise from you. We're going to introduce you to the House of Reps, to the Senate chambers. And um, after that, we got to go to the governor's office. And it was absolutely unreal. I didn't know what to do with my body or my face. <laughs> and I just wanted to cry, but um, I, I, I was like keeping it all in. Um, and then um, they actually presented a proclamation. And it was just such a special moment to you know, share with my family. And what was the actual proclamation? The proclamation was, um, you know, proclaiming that it was like a whole bunch of clauses of uh, Wichuko Kathero being the first Rhodes Scholar and being someone who's a change maker in the realm of environmental issues, food security, really hyped me up <laughs> reading that. I was like, is that me? Um, but uh, yeah, I was just proclaiming um, the honor of the Rhodes Scholarship and um, the honor of being able to represent um, the state of Connecticut moving forward. That was mm-hmm. so incredible. I want to thank Wichuko Gathero for joining us here on Where We Live. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. That was Wajiko Gutheru, an environmental studies senior at UConn. She's the university's first ever Rhodes Scholar and will be heading to Oxford later this year for her graduate studies. Coming up, what role can forests play in combating climate change? We'll hear from a professor at the University of Vermont about how forests can serve as carbon sinks. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and this is Where We Live. Well, sometimes I go out buzzing and I look across the water And I think of all the things what's going on in my head This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. News about global warming doesn't leave much room for optimism, but scientists are looking at multiple ways to combat climate change. We wanted to learn about strategies when coupled with efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that may help the planet avoid a warm-up above 1.5 degrees Celsius. Beyond that, and scientists say planet Earth will see serious consequences, including sea level rise, severe drought, and the displacement of millions. Did you know trees are invaluable in storing carbon and reducing emissions? Joining me now from Vermont Public Radio is Dr. Bill Keaton, professor of forest ecology and forestry at the University of Vermont. Bill, welcome to where we live. Good morning. Glad to be here. Uh, We've often heard uh, forests described as carbon sinks. Tell us what we mean by that when we hear that term. Well, of course, forests take up carbon from the atmosphere through the process of photosynthesis. And then they store that carbon in vegetation and in other life forms over the long term. And if they're taking up more carbon from the atmosphere through photosynthesis than they're losing through respiration and decomposition, 
then that means that that becomes a sink. It becomes a bank, essentially, that is storing carbon. And that's really important because the more carbon that we can keep in that bank, in the forest system, the less of it will be up in the atmosphere as a greenhouse gas. And how is that different with how forests are storing carbon compared to when we think about fossil fuels that are underground? Well, it's a little different because fossil fuels are this very stable, very long-term storage reservoir, so to speak, you know, that's permanently locked in the earth. Whereas carbon that's moving in and out of forests is in constant flux. It's a, a very dynamic system. And that's tricky because if we're talking about managing forests or conserving forests as a carbon sink, really we're talking about playing around with these dynamics and these flux pathways. And we're, we're recognizing that carbon's constantly moving in and out of the system, but we're trying to lock up more of it in the system and in durable wood products and other sinks uh, at any one instant in time as we can so that we're tilting that balance a little bit so more of it is stored down here and less of it is up in the atmosphere. So that's why a forest management is important uh, when we think about how trees are either dying naturally or being cut down, even rotting, uh, as that carbon is then uh, re-released into the atmosphere. So uh, tell us about some of your work and how you started thinking about forest management practices to help with the carbon that's stored in our forests. Sure. Well, I've been interested for a long time in things that we could do not just to manage forests sustainably for wildlife and for water and for timber and all the uh, goods and services that we depend upon, but also for carbon. And and I became interested in various different silvicultural techniques or forestry techniques that are a little bit lower impact. They're a little bit lighter on the land, and yet they help the forest to accrue or accumulate carbon over time more so than they might under, let's say, a more conventional management approach. And we've discovered that, that we can do that, that we can manage forests sustainably for timber while also adding this margin of carbon storage uh, to the land. And then it turns out also that carbon provides a pretty good umbrella for a lot of other things that we care about. What I mean is a forest managed well for carbon is also likely to provide a lot of other services that we really depend on, like flood resilience and habitat for biodiversity and open space and a lot of other things. When we think about our region of New England and our forests, uh, how much of it uh, remains forested? And when we think about uh, old growth trees, are any of those left? Yeah, well, not as much as I would like. (laughs) But um, Connecticut has 1.8 million acres of forests, and that's down off of its peak. Um, Of course, most of Connecticut, like southern New England, was cleared for agriculture in the 18th and 19th centuries and then recovered. It showed this remarkable rebound in forest area. But that peaked in Connecticut in the 70s and 80s, and, and since then, had been declining for quite a while and is now at about 58% forest cover. But there's some good news in Connecticut, which is that the most recent U.S. Forest Service data show that the forest cover there has actually stabilized and might even be ticking up a little bit. It increased 3% since 2012. 
overall for the region as a whole, for all of New England, we're somewhere around 80% forested cover. And, you know, that varies. In southern New England, it's less. In northern New England, it's more. Up here in Vermont, we're at 78. But the point is that we have a heavily forested landscape. And there are a lot of things that we can do to manage that landscape as a carbon sink, both by conserving forests and by managing them sustainably. And, and I want to just really stress that idea of conserving forests because probably the best thing that we can do to fight climate change from a forestry standpoint is just to keep forests as forests. And then sort of once we acknowledge that, then there are lots of things we could talk about in terms of specific management techniques. There's an increasing awareness that urban forest cover and suburban forest cover, which of course is important in a heavily parcelized landscape like Connecticut with a high population density, that urban and suburban forest cover also is really important from a carbon storage standpoint. Oh, when we think about, uh, our, I know you're up in Vermont, when we think about uh, Connecticut, places that have been cleared through agriculture but have now been uh, turned over for uh, economic development. So reforestation, is that not much of an option for a state like Connecticut because of all of the, um, the development that has come uh, down the line and, and people's urges to want to live further and further into uh, the country, so to speak? Reforestation is an important option. And maybe this would be a good opportunity for me to just quickly mention that there are three general approaches we could think about for using forests as a carbon sink. One is reforestation, or maybe even afforestation, meaning planting forests where we haven't had them before. The second is something called avoided conversion. And what this basically means is protecting a forest from some kind of a, a change or a conversion to some other cover type like development or pavement or a yard or something like that. So basically keeping it as forest. And then the third option is something called improved forest management, meaning we will use these carbon forestry techniques that I was describing before. So we've got those three options. And of those three... Avoided conversion is actually probably the most important for southern New England because of the development pressure that you have there. But that said, improved forest management on the forests that you do have is going to be very important. So that's something we really need to look at. Reforestation that you asked me about is important, but there are fewer opportunities for that in New England generally because we are heavily forested and we don't have a lot of marginal agricultural lands or, or places we would want to take out of agricultural production and put back into forests. There might be some areas like that, like in particular up here where I live, riparian restoration or planting of forests along streams and rivers is really important to improve water quality uh, and to reduce nutrient runoff into lakes. Um, and, and that is a good opportunity. But compared to some other parts of the world, reforestation here is probably not going to be our, our biggest option. So um, in your research, uh, switching from higher to lower intensity harvesting practices uh, can help uh, keep uh, more carbon in our forests. So tell us how you do that. Well, there's some general approaches. One might be to harvest the forest a little bit less frequently. Foresters call that an extended rotation, basically allowing the forest to grow for a longer period of time between harvests. And if you do that, you give the forest a chance to accumulate more carbon and, and store it. The second is something that we call retention, um, meaning each time we do harvest for timber, 
We try to leave trees behind, standing and dead on the ground as downed logs. So we try to retain structure and carbon in the forest. And once you understand that retention is an option, then you can start talking about lots of different forestry techniques that do that in different ways. So, you know, in very broad terms, those are the kinds of things that the forestry profession is exploring. So those tend to be a little bit lighter touch. And in some cases, we can even use those approaches to restore older forest conditions. It's something I'm interested in in particular, the idea that that old growth forests and and restored old forests um, can store exceptionally high quantities of carbon, and that could be a really important strategy. But there's also really an important role for well-managed working forests that are producing what we call durable wood products. So timber that's going into long-term storage as opposed to some kind of product that's disposed of quickly and only has a short lifespan. There's a lot of interest these days in something called mass timber, basically large-dimension timber, cross-laminated beams and this kind of thing that can be used to produce large timber frame structures. There's been good work out of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies there in, in New Haven and, and elsewhere, you know, showing that that can be an important carbon sink as well. So for the forest sector overall, U.S. Forest Service scientist uh, Chris Woodall said, we need a portfolio of carbon strategies that would include these more lightly managed forests, maybe old forest reserves, as well as really well-managed working forests that are pr- providing these durable wood products. This is where we live. My guest, uh, Bill Keaton, professor of forest ecology and forestry at University of Vermont. I wanted to take a call. Susan from Simsbury is on the line. Susan, go ahead. I'm just publishing a paper right now on a kind of a specific defined strategy for letting existing forests grow called proforestation. So this would be a way of explicitly saying that for carbon, one of the best things we can do is older forests are actually soaking up an incredible amount of carbon and letting them grow, particularly in key ecoregions, would be a really important cost-effective strategy and the most immediate strategy to having the biggest benefits for climate change. And what we found is that actually there's an incredibly tiny amount of forest that is protected legally as um, an intact ecosystem that would be explicitly explicitly dedicated to this pro-forestation approach. Well, there's probably nobody who would, you know, agree more than I do that there's a really important role for old-growth forests as carbon reservoirs. And I've spent much of my career studying old-growth in the Adirondacks and, and in many other parts of the world. And, and I agree absolutely with the caller that the, the research is clear that not only do old-growth forests store exceptionally high levels of carbon, but uh, the most recent data show that they actually continue to add carbon, or at least they can, for much longer periods of time than we used to believe. So I, I couldn't agree more that um, protecting the old-growth forests that are left is really important and that there might also be a role for restoring more old growth or, or bringing those back on some portion of the landscape. However, I don't uh, agree with the view that all of our forests should be managed that way. I think that there are other issues when you start talking about protecting or not managing the majority of our forests. Uh, one of the most important is that the the demand for timber and wood products is typically met in, in that kind of 
scenario simply by displacing your consumption of timber uh, to another source. And so the, the concern is that we would simply displace the harvesting impact somewhere else in the world and then need to import the timber uh, and the wood products uh, from there. And, and that kind of activity can have a higher carbon footprint associated with it than if we produce those wood products sustainably here at home. So I'm a believer and again, having a portfolio, uh, sort of a mix of options and strategies that we use on the landscape, reserves, uh, extended rotations, uh, lightly managed forests, but also areas that we're, we're managing really well using excellent forestry practices to provide wood products uh, sustainably right here at home. From your research and what you've been doing in Vermont, uh, what is your advice for landowners in Connecticut to participate in uh, so-called carbon markets uh, to help us store more carbon in our forests? Sure. Well, that that's a big question and a really important one. Uh, I probably won't be able to address it fully uh, this morning on the radio, so I'll just say really quickly that if you Google Vermont Forest ca- Carbon, you'll find a really good report that kind of lays out all the options for landowners, not just in Vermont, but throughout New England. So that would be a really good source. Um, but really quickly, for, for a state like Connecticut, it'll be a little bit challenging to participate in carbon markets because your parcel sizes there tend to be quite low. I, I looked up the statistics before the show, and about 71% of Connecticut's forests are privately owned. And then of that, uh, only 30% is in parcel sizes that are 100 acres or larger in size, and only 2% in parcels that are 500 acres or more in size. And that's tricky then from a carbon market standpoint, because to make carbon projects work well, you you need larger parcels, either single large uh, parcels on the order of a thousand acres or more in size for a standalone project or properties that are about 200 acres or more in size that you might aggregate together into a, a more cooperative carbon project that would be eligible for the international voluntary carbon markets. So it's going to be tricky to make that work in Connecticut, and yet there are opportunities. You do have some some parcels and some properties that are in the 200-acre and larger size categories where you could think about doing aggregated projects like we're beginning to pioneer up here in Vermont. Um, and there also might be a role for something really unconventional, and, and, and I'm going to be bold and propose it right here on the air, so you heard it here first, but the idea of actually reestablishing larger parcels, basically de-subdividing um, some areas where you can form up larger areas that, that then might be eligible for uh, for carbon projects. The, the fundamental issue there is just the economy of scale that you need to make a carbon project work. The, the costs of, of developing those projects tend to be quite high, so you need a larger area on the order of several thousand acres to generate enough revenue through the sale of emissions offsets to outweigh those, those upfront costs. Well, thank you uh, for bringing up that idea here on the show. Uh, Dr. Bill Keaton, again, Professor of Forest Ecology and Forestry at University of Vermont. Uh, Very interesting to talk with you to learn about your research. Bill, thanks for joining us from Vermont Public Radio. Thanks so much for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff, and our technical producer is Kion Wolf. As always, you can go to our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, to learn more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.